Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to have as our special guest today, Dr. Jennifer Ogilvie. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Surgery, Division of Surgical Oncology, Section of Endocrine Surgery at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And she's also a faculty member of the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine. It's a pleasure to have you today. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I know that you have a, a busy clinical program, and you also support needs for that with a very active research program as well. So perhaps a place to begin is for you just to spend a few moments and tell us about your, your interest, both clinically and uh, from a research perspective. Well, my clinical uh, focus, and I uh, have now become fairly early in my career very subspecialized within the field of surgery, is in endocrine surgery, um, and that's the care of patients with thyroid, parathyroid, and adrenal diseases. Um, I spend about three and a half days a week operating on patients and seeing them in clinic and performing clinical research, and about a day and a half a week here in the laboratory um, working on the tissue engineering of endocrine organs. My research focus is based on the premise that endocrine organs, which are those organs that produce hormones that affect many different body symptoms, are regenerative. And to replace those hormones in the laboratory um, via an uh, organ replacement system um, would be ideal for patients suffering from deficiencies of certain hormones. So if I understand correctly, the, the current state of the art is that the, uh, the, these insufficiencies due to removal of these glands is with uh, some type of medication? Correct. So if you remove someone's thyroid gland, for example, it's fairly easy to correct that hormone deficiency with, a th with uh, essentially thyroid hormone as a pill. If you remove both of someone's adrenal glands, which control um, at least four different important hormones that are necessary for life, it's much more difficult to replicate that function exactly. And patients with adrenal insufficiency often suffer from increased mortality and morbidity due to their insufficiency and our inability to replicate what the organ does in the living body. Parathyroid glands are another uh, example where if all four parathyroid glands are damaged from surgery or disease, it's absolutely vital that you take high doses of calcium and vitamin D. To replace the parathyroid gland in a tissue engineered form would be a much more physiologic uh, and um, less morbid uh, form of replacement. So uh, perhaps the a place to begin this discussion is to define the magnitude of the problem. I have the impression that uh, this is a, a reasonably common affliction and hence there's a a lot of people that are affected by this particular uh, need, is that correct? It's actually pretty rare. Those two examples I gave you are fairly rare. They're common in my field because that's what I specialize in, but overall they're fairly rare. A huge hormone deficiency that everyone would know about is diabetes, and we actually have a side project on that um, looking for how can you replace the endocrine portion of the pancreas uh, called islet cell function, which, which is the part that produces insulin. Um, we have a separate project looking at that with some of the research at the Rang some of the researchers at the Rangos Research Center. Okay, so let's talk about the the research. And so I, I understand that you're trying to develop a, a tissue engineered replacement for these uh, for the th thyroid and adrenal glands. Is that correct? For parathyroids and adrenals, mm -hmm. yes. And uh, can you just in a in in general lay terms? Uh, 
give us some insight into that, please? Sure. So the, the adrenal gland, again, produces at least four different hormones that are fairly critical for supporting life. The most important one is actually cortisol, which is uh, produced by the one of the layers of the adrenal cortex. Our preliminary work for the adrenal project is to isolate adrenal cortical cells from the adult pig and seed those onto extracellular matrix that we've removed the cells from called decellularization to make an extracellular matrix uh, made of proteins. That matrix supports the, the growth of those pig adrenal cortical cells and allows them to produce cortisol at physiologic or normal life-supporting uh, levels. Some of our listeners have been introduced to uh, tissue engineering and extracellular matrix before because we've had the pleasure of having some other scientists here like Dr. Badalak, who I know you collaborate with. Uh, so I think the listening audience has uh, some ap general appreciation of the concept and uh, this is another adaptation of this core technology in terms of extracellular matrix. Exactly. We've been very fortunate to work closely with Steve Badalak and his uh, researchers to, to benefit from his prior research in this area. And it, it does appear that in the adrenal gland, like so many other organ systems that he has studied, adrenal cells seem to preferentially prefer or seem to preferentially um, grow and function well on adrenal-specific matrix. We're doing a side project right now looking at whether they grow as well on uh, other extracellular matrices such as the urinary bladder matrix and the uh, small intestinal submucosa matrix, and it does appear that they do prefer the adrenal matrix. I know that your research is relatively young. In fact, I recall you've only been at this for about two years. Of course, many listeners are interested in when this might help them or somebody they know. Would it be safe to say that this is uh, uh, three to four or five years away from uh, uh, clinical trials? I'd say that's safe. I think the, the next step for us is to put these usable in vitro models into an in vivo model um, using an immunosuppressed mouse. And once we prove that we can remove that host mouse adrenal glands and have them survive normally with the um, implanted tissue engineer adrenal gland, then we'll be ready for clinical trials. I think what we envision is, if possible, to use a patient's own autologous cells would be the most ideal situation. Sometimes um, we have to remove adrenal tumors for uh, tumors that involve other portions of the adrenal gland other than the cortex and can save some of the cortex to then produce tissue-engineered uh, adrenal glands. That would be the most ideal situation, which would not require immunosuppression. But I think we're at least five years away from that standpoint. And while that's a long time for anybody that's in a need for this, I also understand that you've made some very significant progress to get to where you are in the laboratory. Yeah, I'm happy about our progress so far. We've had several undergraduate researchers who've spent the summer with me. Um, we've been very fortunate to have a PTEI, uh, Pittsburgh Tissue Engineering Initiative intern, um, for the past two summers and uh, have had presentations at national meetings from all of those students. So looking, looking ahead, uh, assuming this, your hypothesis uh, holds forth as you continue with your research uh, and there is a, a tissue engineered solution to these uh, particular problems, is, is the vision that you would have some tissue engineered construct that just to be implanted and 
in place of the, the missing uh, gland? Exactly, exactly. Um, as to where that would be implanted, um, probably in a well-vascularized area, either underneath the kidney capsule, which has been used by many researchers in the past, in the muscle, or possibly in the omentum, which is the fatty, sort of well-vascularized layer that covers the intestines. All of those are potential sites for reimplantation. One nice thing about tissue engineering of endocrine organs is that the organs themselves in the natural situation are small, and so the requirements for grams of tissue-engineered tissue are low. For example, an adrenal gland can probably be replaced by on the order of about one gram of tissue. Parathyroid can be replaced on the order of about 20 milligrams of tissue. So we're a little bit better off in that respect than trying to replace something like a liver or a kidney, which is many, many times larger in size and complexity. Uh, I also understand that uh, you uh, have some collaborative research looking at progenitor cells. Uh, could you uh, describe that briefly for us, please? That's in its very early stages, but a very exciting field, in my uh, opinion. We're interested in learning more, using tissue engineering to learn more about how the adrenal gland develops and, uh, and forms in its natural adult state. Um, and we're collaborating with Bruno Peo and other researchers uh, as part of the Stem Cell Research Center to try to use surface markers of uh, adrenal gland cells to try to sort out adrenal progenitor cells. We'll hopefully be moving into that research project sometime this winter. Yeah, Dr. Peo has been one of our guests on Regenerative Medicine Today, so uh, perhaps many of our listeners uh, recall that interview, and of course it's available at regenerativemedicinetoday.net. I also understand that uh, you've uh, begun some research in terms of tumor vaccines. Uh, that sounds like a, a very novel approach to uh, some very common problems. Uh, perhaps you can describe that to us. Sure. I'm uh, part of the University of Pittsburgh Cancer Institute, or the UPCI, and also as part of the Division of Surgical Oncology, have formed a collaboration with one of our researchers, Powell Kalinsky, and his research focuses on developing engineered dendritic cells, which are immune cells that react against foreign proteins. And in particular, he's interested in the dendritic cell's ability to fight cancer. Our collaborative project involves seeding dendritic cells and other immune system cells, like T cells, onto a decellularized lymph node to hopefully make a tissue-engineered lymph node that can help fight cancer. So... We've had some previous discussions in, in prior podcasts about uh, cancer stem cells. Now, uh, how does what you're exploring relate to tumors as contrasted to what some people's hypothesis is that the, the bad actor in a tumor is not the tumor but the cancer stem cell? The trouble with cancer stem cell is identifying markers of that stem cell, and that's a huge area of research, as I'm sure you've discussed with many other researchers, uh, both at the UPCI and in other institutions. If, though, a marker is identified, it's possible to have the immune system trained to respond against that marker, either with antibodies or direct cell killing by something called cytotoxic T cells. Um, and then dendritic cells' function in the immune system is to hold up those markers or, or be what's called antigen-presenting cells to stimulate the immune system to fight the invader, in this case, the cancer. So they're very closely connected. The problem is, is with many cancer stem cells, 
the markers have not been defined. But that, again, is a very active area of research. I, I gather that you, just from this brief discussion, that you have a, a multitude of uh, different uh, interest areas and uh, probably would be amiss if I didn't also mention the fact that you have some begun some work in terms of pancreas and islet cells. Is that correct? That is. One of our students is working in a collaboration with Rita, Dr. Rita Patino in Massimo Trucco's lab to look at decellularized pancreatic ECM and using it as a matrix to support the growth of islets. That project is also in its infancy, but we've seen that the islets attach to the matrix and appear to produce insulin in response to glucose challenges. So that's a very exciting uh, area of research as well, although the field of um, pancreatic tissue engineering is, is filled with excellent researchers. I think it'll be interesting to see if this approach uh, adds to the field a little bit. I've also done some more work with that particular student on looking at the development of the extracellular matrix in the pancreas throughout time. So she took pancreas organs from developing rat uh, embryos through different stages in time and looked at how the ECM changes throughout time uh, and what different components there are within the ECM. You know, as I uh, listen to the many endeavors that you have underway and all the ones you've you've described use uh, naturally uh, derived ECM. In the past had uh, some other investigators here, Dr. Wagner is one that comes to mind that is uh, using synthetically developed scaffolds. Is there, do you have any thoughts in terms of the pros and cons of uh, synthetically developed scaffolds versus naturally derived scaffolds? I think that there are definitely pros and cons for each one. We've focused on the naturally derived scaffolds because those are the ones that have been made by the cells in nature. There are plenty of, of excellent uses for synthetic scaffolds, but this project has tried to stay as biocompatible as possible. Um, and we also, again, benefit from the expertise of the Badalek lab and my collaboration with Steve Badalek to know that the cells seem to preferentially grow and uh, reproduce and develop well on those matrices. We just haven't tried the synthetic scaffold, so, and that may be something that we look at in the future. Okay, well, I have to commend you on the, uh, the many initiatives that you have, and uh, while uh, preliminary, some very promising uh, results to this point. Uh, I've heard you speak several times in this discussion about the uh, students, and I I know from some other discussions that you are a very active proponent of, uh, of mentoring and training. Perhaps uh, you could just share a few remarks with us about uh, your endeavors in that regard. I've been very fortunate to work with many excellent uh, undergraduate students, uh, mainly in our bioengineering department, and to mentor them either into graduate studies or medical school. I think that the University of Pittsburgh and the McGowan Institute offer a tremendous amount of support for mentoring and for students to get good early exposure into the lab and I think that that's absolutely critical either towards fostering a graduate student or a medical student who becomes uh, a clinician researcher such as myself. The Pittsburgh Tissue Engineering Initiative has been a fantastic program that's very supportive of students and allows them to perform in-depth research for a summer but also to have other experiences in ethics of science and a little bit of clinical exposure as well. I do a lot of medical student teaching um, in my clinical realm and am one of the associate directors for the third year clerkships uh, for 
medical students learning how to do surgery and also teach several courses for the first year medical students. So I think there's a lot of potential for collaboration and for fostering research uh, here at the University of Pittsburgh. Well, I have to commend you for that because I know there's been many careers shaped by this characterizes early on mentoring, and uh, it's uh, it's fascinating to see individuals who you know make career choices based on these opportunities. So uh, you're to be commended for what you're doing in that regard. It, it's been a pleasure to have you here today and to uh, learn of these many exciting endeavors that are underway. Uh, they certainly hold promise for the future in terms of some. Uh, novel and, and innovative uh, solutions to uh, problems that we've discussed here. I want to remind our listeners that uh, we can't do medical diagnosis by email. We will post on the Regenerative Medicine Today website uh, Dr. Olgovie's uh, clinical contacts if you have any interest in, uh, in specific uh, issues that uh, she may be able to have assistance. I'd also like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine, which sponsors these podcasts. And I look forward to uh, being with you again in two weeks with another interesting interview. Thank you and best wishes. <laughs>